The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Anyone among you in trouble, let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. This is God's word for today. Heavenly Father, we ask you to speak. We ask as we close up James today, Lord, that uh, we hear your message for the disciple of you. Lord, for your children to be uh, the best sons and daughters of God that you equipped and created us to be. Lord, we say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. So, I preach sermons a uh, pretty standard way every single week. And it always starts off with, at the top of my message, I have a theme. And I try to take one point and say, okay, this is going to be the main thrust that we're going to talk about this week. Because I'm a firm believer that, for the most part, nine times out of ten, if I try to teach five things, I will teach zero things. If I try to teach three things, I will teach zero things. So me and my given limitations as a pastor, because I'm not that good of a pastor, I can normally do one thing and one thing okay, and I'm normally pretty safe there. But James chapter 5 honestly did not happen with And the reason being is because unlike most of the other chapters in James, this is kind of the kitchen sink chapter of the book, right? We've been talking about how James was a letter written to the early church, to early Christians, not to Christians in a certain town or a certain community, but to the entire Christian church about how we're supposed to live our lives. And in the same way how when I'm talking to my mom and we're getting towards the end of the conversation, right, it starts off fairly linear, but the last five minutes of any conversation I have with my mom, we cover like 20 different topics, right? Because at that point, she's just trying to make sure that she checks off all the balances and you know this happened to grandma and you know this happened with your sister and oh, did you check on this and oh, this is in the mail, right? And so you get this like litany. And that's essentially what happens in James chapter 5. So we're going to cover a ton of different topics about the Christian life. And yet, in those different topics, we're going to see this theme that we have a God who is coming near, a God who is coming back, a God who has plans for this world, and those plans are going to happen sooner than we think. And because of that, he writes James chapter 5, all right? So we're going to start off, James 5, 1 and following. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming onto you. Wow, this is a great fun chapter, isn't it? I mean, this is definitely that uplifting portion of scripture that you read when you're at your darkest place. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Wow, keeps going. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and they will eat your flesh like fire. Oh, nice, uplifting. You have hoarded your wealth in the last days. There are a lot of misinterpretations of finances in Scripture. Money isn't a problem. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that money is bad. But the love of money, 
Well, that has all kinds of toxic effects on people. And it's this last line, you have hoarded your wealth in the last days, which gives context to this first portion of James. Because when we hoard wealth, the word hoard literally means to hide, to covet, and to protect. When we hide, covet, and protect what God has given us, it starts to corrode our soul. And you see this in your own life, you see this in the lives of families, you see this in the lives of communities, but the tighter that we cling to our financial resources, the more we're proving that's where we're putting our trust in our protection. I was reading through that section of scripture and the uh, image or the story that kept coming to my mind was smog from Lord of the Rings, right? It's the dragon who sits on that giant pile of gold, right? And the whole story of the Hobbit is them trying to go and retake all the gold that was taken from the dwarves, right? And they get there and it's just this massive, massive, massive pile, mountain of gold protected by a dragon who is literally hoarding it. It is the dragon's hoard, right? And that battle, that toxicity, not only corrodes the dragon in the Hobbit, it actually ends up corroding most of the dwarves. Because they were putting their trust, they were putting their hope, they were putting their faith in financial resources. And James says, when you do that, it actually starts to corrode inside. Something goes wrong on the inside of us. And he goes, guys, it's not worth it. Trusting in wealth isn't going to leave you with life. In fact, it's going to suck life out of you. Right? And then he goes on and he talks about, look, the wages you have failed to pay the workers who have mowed your fields are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Again, this is really uplifting stuff James is doing here. But then he, again, he puts his last thrust in. He says, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. What James is saying is that we are responsible for those who have less power, less influences, or less resources than we do. God gives us gifts, whether they're talents, whether they're finances, whether they're a house or a family or experiences. And he says, I want you to use those gifts to bless others. I want you to use those gifts to bring God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, right? That's what we just sang, build your kingdom here. It's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. We have a God who says, I want to bring a slice of what it's like in heaven here on earth to bring that beauty, that love, that life, and have it emanate out. That's what the church is built to do. I'm going to be completely honest with you guys. This is something that I had a certain level of pride in. So I've been a pastor now for seven years. And for the most of my ministry, I focused on what I consider Christian community development, helping Christians lean into communities and have an impact, right? So building community gardens, partnering with organizations like Acts of Love, partnering with schools. It's what I'm passionate about. And again, seven years in, I didn't think I knew everything, but I was fairly confident in my abilities. And then I went to Costa Rica. And I realized I am but a poor wee little child in a never-ending uh, uh, pursuit to mature and to see how big our God is. Because what God is doing through one church in Costa Rica is literally 100 times the impact that I have had over my seven years of ministry. They work with the mentally and physically disabled. They've started schools. They've built over 150 houses. 
They have such a high impact. We talked about last week that the government actually said, we want you to foster 32 of our most troubled youth in Costa Rica. That's how much impact they've had is that the government says, hey, we've got these 32 kids who are really struggling that can't fit in any foster home. Will you as the church take them? And the church took them. And while it has not been a straight line where it's not perfect, one of the girls is actually now the president of the high school. That's how far she came from can't even be in a regular foster home to now being the most elite student they have. All right. It was humbling for me to look and be like, wow, that's what it can look like when you do ministry and you really lean into saying, we as Christians want to have an impact. But even in learning from them and hearing from them, I did take a certain amount of grace in realizing it didn't start with like that for them. 30 years ago, when their ministry was just beginning, Pastor Alberto, the pastor down at Communidad Genesis, some of his members said, hey, there is this slum that's really close to our church, and we would like to go to that community, and we'd love to throw a block party, essentially. And he's like, you know what, that's a great idea, but if we're going to throw a party, we want to throw an excellent party, right? We don't want to go low, we want to go big. And so they had inflatable bounce houses, and they had food, and they brought all these groceries, and he shows up, and the way how he describes it, he's like, I show up, and here's this massive block party, and he's like, and here I am, the king of this empire, right? And he's making a joke of it, but he's like, look at our amazing impact that we were having. Look at all this life. Look at all these kids. Look at all this beauty. And so he's walking around, and a couple of his members say, hey, uh, pastor, there is a woman who would like you to pray with her. Would, would you go and, and pray with her? And he said, of course, of course. He goes, I'll tell you what, let's grab some groceries. Let's go up to this hill. Let's meet this woman who wants prayer. And so, so he goes up, and it's, it's this elderly woman, and he tells the story where he gets there, and she's sitting on this old lazy boy recliner. And it's kind of up on this little perch, and on top of it is this little makeshift shelter. And he goes and he talks with her and he says, how are you doing? Do you need anything? She says, no, no, pastor, I just wanted to pray with a brother in Christ. And he goes, well, I'll pray with you, no problem. And so they have this prayer and he gives her these groceries and he's walking back down the hill and he's talking to his members. And he's like, you know what, that's, that's so nice, that's so sweet that that lady has built her own little patio out and about where she can look over everything and see everything. That's, that's beautiful, but, but where does she live? And her members said, what, what do you mean, where does she live? He goes, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, I saw her little patio, but where is her actual house? And the members said, well, we were there. He goes, no, 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 we were, we were on her patio. Because it rains a lot in Costa Rica. And she essentially had a tarp that was over this chair. He goes, no, no, where does she live? And they said, no, pastor, that's her home. And he describes walking down the hill, and he realized he had two options. He said, well, I either have to find a way to get her home, because no sister of mine would I ever be okay living in those situations. Or I stop calling her sister. So those are the only two options that I have as a pastor. Those are the only two options I have in this situation. I either say, you are a sister in Christ of mine, you are part of my family, and because you are part of my family, I'm going to take responsibility for that, and we as a church are going to take responsibility for that, or we can just say, that's fine, we're not going to, but then we're no longer going to call people brothers and sisters, because we don't really mean it. 
And it was that divergence, it was that choice to say, no, she is family, she's our sister, that then started this deeper ministry that's happening in Costa Rica, where they've built over hundreds of homes, where they start schools, where they do recovery ministry, where they're repairing families and communities and working with the government and working with neighborhoods. Because he realized, you know what? This is meant to be deeper and our responsibility is greater than we've given credit for. And that's what James is talking about here. He goes on, he says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop? patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. So you too, be patient and stand firm because again, the Lord is coming near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Three times, James emphasizes God is coming. His kingdom, his impact, his presence is about to show up. And because God is coming, he says, so be patient in this thing that we call faith. Be patient in following Christ. Because yes, sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes there's pain. Sometimes there's hardship. But there is a promise that we're not going to be in this alone. That we have a God who is drawing near to his people, that is drawing near to communities. And everywhere God goes, things get better. That's the whole ministry of Jesus, right? He shows up and the hungry are fed. The sick are healed. Those who have been cast out from community are brought back into connection to God and connection with other people. We have a God who specializes in broken situations. And so when James is writing to the church, he goes, guys, this is going to be hard. There is going to be some suffering, but I promise you that God is coming near. And whenever God draws near, everything changes. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. For you see, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or earth or anything else, all you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. Again, you see the crux of what he's talking about in this statement. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And he references back to the Old Testament, to Job and to the prophets who persevered through suffering, through persecution, through hard times. So remember how God was faithful then? Well, God is still going to be faithful now. He's not done. He's still fighting and advocating for people. And so when we read through Scripture, one of the deepest truths that we have as the Christian church is to realize that the same God with the same characteristics in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, is the same God that we have today. And those words, compassion and mercy, compassion in the Greek literally means to be moved to the core. It means if you see someone else in pain, your core literally connects to that pain. And so when what, Paul, or what James is saying to the church is the hurt that you're feeling, the challenge that, challenges that you're suffering, 
that you have a God who is literally connecting to that, that is moved by that, and because he's moved by that, he moves in the situation. And he brings that mercy, and he brings that grace, and he brings that love, and it changes how we respond. And is any among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is any among you sick? Let them call upon the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. For the prayer offered in faith will make a sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. And therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Oftentimes in the church, we can think that there are only specific areas that God wants in our lives, right? God only wants us to be happy, and so we pretend that we have to be happy all the time. I joke about some churches, quite frankly, sometimes how I act in church, right? You show up, and you think, all right, I got to go to church, so for the next hour, I have to pretend that everything is going to be okay. How you doing, Pastor Josh? I'm blessed, let me tell you. I mean, my house might be falling down, right? My car might not be working, could have had a family member just pass away, but I'm blessed, right? Or we think, no, we, we should just mourn, right? We, we, we can't be happy. If we're happy, there's something wrong in our faith. And we certainly can't be sinful, right? We can't be broken. We can't be honest of, you know what? I'm still a work in progress. I still got some mess. I still got some hurt that's in my life, and I don't know what to do with it. What James says is, no matter what situation you are in, joyful, sorrowful, even sin, there is space for it in the community of God. If you're happy, he commands the entire church Sing songs of thanksgiving. If, if you're hurting, call the body of Christ, the family of God together to pray, to lay hands on, to intercede. He even says, confess your sins to one another. This is something that churches sometimes get away from. Because the, the, the fear then goes, well, once you're a Christian, once your sins have been forgiven, then you're good, right? Grace. You're going to get to heaven. But the problem is, while we are forgiven, each week we wrestle with stuff. We get muck back on us. And so James invites the church, be honest with one another. Admit the brokenness. Admit the sin. And, he goes, and, and God's going to forgive it. But we don't have to do that just individually. In fact, there is liberation when we do it communally. When we admit as a church, you know what? I'm still broken. It gives the darkness less power. It gives the sin less power in our lives when we don't have to hide it. And so James says, guys, whatever space you're in, good, bad, hurt, evil, he goes, there's a role for faith in it. There's a role for God in it, and there's a role for Christian community in it. And then this is probably my favorite line in James. For the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. See, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. 
Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. James writes, and he says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful. It literally changes reality. And we can read that word righteous and think, well, that means you're a good person, and sometimes I'm not a good person, so maybe my prayers aren't that effective. But when you look at righteousness from a biblical perspective, it's about relationship. It's about right relationship with the Father. And because we have a right relationship with the Father through Jesus, we are counted righteous. We are counted on Team Jesus. We are part of the family. And as part of the family, as part as a child of God, we get to call out to the God of the universe who literally speaks creation into existence and we can say, hey, there's some hurt down here. Father, can you change it? Can you redeem it? Can you restore it? And scripture is full of prayer changing reality. And there is this false dichotomy where you will have tragedy and some will say, stop praying and do something. Or others who say, well, I will pray but not do something. James, earlier in the book, takes both to account. He says, we're not simply called to pray when there is tragedy, but we would be naive not to actually lean into something that can change the fabric of reality. And so we call out to our God, we call out to our Father, and we intercede for our brothers and our sisters. That's why we have the prayer wall back there. That's why every Tuesday we have a group of children of God who get together and individually pray over each request of the church. To pray for what God is doing. To pray for relief for our family. But then we don't simply just pray. As he gives us opportunity to lean in, We act, we move, we love. It's a both and, not an either or. And then he finishes by saying, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multiple of sins he begins and ends the book in the same way by pointing the early Christian church, the children of God, back towards each other. Back towards a bigger mission of a God who wants to reconnect people to himself and reconnect people to each other, who wants to restore our relationship with him, our relationship with our family, and our relationship with our community. This is a hard book of the Bible. It's a challenging book of the Bible. I read through it multiple times now this month. And it's just like gut gut punch, gut punch, gut punch. And it can be almost intimidating of God. I'm not this good. I can't handle all of this. This is asking too much of me, asking too much of what I think I'm capable of doing. And again, I'm going to echo back to Pastor Alberto. Over the next month, we're going to be having some videos of some of the ministry that's happening down in Costa Rica. And most of them are between five and seven minutes, and they're kind of snapshots of different ministries. But we wanted to get a little bit of the theological reasoning behind 
why they do what they do. And so we interviewed the pastor and we said, can we get a short interview with you about why you do? And that short interview was about 35 minutes. Um, And so we're not going to show that in its entirety here today. But he did have a really interesting way of describing the life of a Christian and how God moved from him talking to that lady and realizing that he had a plan for him, that he needed to do more, that the church needed to do more than what they thought was possible. And he had a really good description. So we're going to play a video. I think the sound's going to work. And then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit. I love that example of you get out in the open road, right? And all of a sudden you're terrified because it's not natural to our own sinful condition, right? It's not natural to be loving and generous in the way that the Bible calls us to. And yet that idea of, it's like a four by four and Eric and I just experienced this. So we didn't realize that our car, we knew it had four by four traction when we were down in Costa Rica. We did a little vacation beforehand, but we didn't know how to turn it on, right? And so you're out on these roads and these are not the best roads and you're going up these hills. But the first time we figured out the button that you needed to push, right? To go from just regular eh to like, oh, I got power. All of a sudden it became different. It became this joy All of a sudden, rain didn't scare us anymore. Hills didn't scare us anymore. It was like, let's go. Let's do this thing. That's what the Christian life is like. We were designed for it. We have a God who literally built each and every one of us individually, but he built us to be a part of something bigger. It's like each of us is a different part of that four by four. Whether it's the brakes, whether it's the gears, whether it's the axles, he goes, and when my church comes together, when they start moving in rhythm, all of a sudden it becomes a joy. All of a sudden you realize that this is the most natural thing because we were designed by the perfect creator to do it. And that's really my last thing that I just want to say as we end up this chapter on James. In fact, the book of James is that this thing called discipleship can be scary, it can be a lot of unknown, 
and yet it was designed by the perfect creator, the perfect designer, to bring out the best in us, to unleash us, to be able to love like we never thought possible, to be able to have an impact like we never dreamed. And at the end of the day, it becomes that joy and that excitement. And we're called to do it together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, a God who specializes in taking broken things and communities and situations and children and doing something beautiful and redemptive and restorative with them. Lord, we pray that as a church that we can have that boldness to follow you, to love like you love Lord, to have an impact that exceeds any of our own dreams or ideals or perceptions. Lord, we say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.